Largely, the commercial approach over the past 10, 15 years has remained, you know, unchanged, at least a lot of it. It's still, you know, based on some, you know, regular brand cycle plan um, that really is the bedrock of how the, the, the commercial pharmaceutical organization operates. And I've literally stopped using the term new commercial model. I probably stopped using it like five years ago because it just started to feel so trite being said for so many years. But I do think we're starting to see a pivot uh, in a lot of what has formed that bedrock. Hi, everyone. I'm Clay Hausman, CMO of Octana and host of this podcast, Contextual Intelligence. I am very excited for today's conversation because our guest has the ear of some of the top executives in global pharmaceutical and med device companies. He advises clients on a broad range of strategic and commercial topics, including marketing and sales, commercial model transformation, and business unit strategy. He has spent the past 13 years at McKinsey, where he is currently a senior partner. Nick Mills, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks, Clay. Uh, Very glad to be here. So let's start kind of with your background. You have possibly one of the most concise LinkedIn profiles I've ever seen. (laughs) It's college degree, McKinsey, present. So tell us a bit about how you got started, your time at McKinsey. Have you always been focused on life sciences? How has your specialty kind of veered? Take us through that path a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Certainly a bit more circuitous than my LinkedIn profile would suggest. Um, So I'm actually a biochemist by training. Uh, I have a PhD in chemical biology from uh, UCSF. So I spend time out there on the on the West Coast. Very early on in full transparency in my in my career uh, as a biochemist, I, I, I sort of knew I was much more interested in the business side of things. So I was more or less looking for an out uh, after a couple years into my PhD. And I heard there was this company called McKinsey who, you know, helped uh, a number of different types of industries, but life sciences being one of them on the most important business topics that they had. I thought that sounds interesting. I sort of called it my, uh, uh, my business postdoc, uh, was how I thought of it at the time. 13 years later, uh, I've, I've, I've been at McKinsey the entire time. So I definitely wanted to do life sciences when I entered. That much I knew. I came to McKinsey specifically to do life science work. Given my background, I thought I would be in R&D. No disrespect to my R&D colleagues. I just had more fun with the commercial folks. Uh, so very early on, uh, within a year of my time at McKinsey, started doing commercial work. And in all reality, I've never looked back. It has been a long road from a biochemist to now uh, leading a lot of our commercial work at McKinsey. But uh, it's been something that it's been truly rewarding the entire time. Interesting. Great. Well, let me ask you one of those kind of unwieldy, gigantic questions, but I have a feeling you're going to make some something pretty, pretty intelligent out of it. So in that's been about 13 years you've been at McKinsey. What are some of the most significant ways you've seen the industry change in that time period? Or maybe has it not? Are there kind of through lines that are very consistent over that time period? I think it's both, right? I I think if you think about what has changed significantly, the complexity of healthcare provision has changed significantly. As you think about, you know, the way market access has evolved over that that period of time, the way just working with, you know, provider customers, large health systems, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the complexity of provision of care has increased significantly. And so the pharmaceutical companies have really had to adapt to 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 try to provide that that sort of top-notch customer experience. Uh, the complexity of disease uh, has changed significantly. So, I mean, even 13 years ago, it was still a lot of primary care, not that that's gone from the industry, but 
but just more and more complex disease, more complex understanding of the disease and the therapies themselves, right? It was still, you know, the, 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 the biologic was still you know, relatively new uh, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and now we're getting into cell and gene therapy. So I think there has been a lot of change and, you know, the, cu- the customers have evolved significantly. The therapies have evolved significantly. And, and the degree to which the sort of technical nature of the commercial organization has had to change uh, has, has, I think, kept pace quite nicely. On the flip side, you know, where where has it maybe not changed? You know, in in truth, for that whole period of time, in one way, shape, or form, I've heard the term commercial transformation uh, or the new commercial model. Uh, and 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 I think if we really you know step back and think about it, largely the commercial approach over the past 10, 15 years has remained you know unchanged. Uh, at least a lot of it. Uh, it's still largely face to face. It's still, you know, based on some, you know, regular brand cycle plan um, that really is the bedrock of how the, the the commercial pharmaceutical organization operates. And I've literally stopped using the term new commercial model. I probably stopped using it like five years ago because it just started to feel so trite being said for so many years. But I do think we're starting to see a pivot uh, in a lot of what has formed that bedrock. If I'm blunt about it, I, I don't I don't think that has kept pace uh, with the rest of the complexity of disease, customer base. Uh, and 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 sort of operating model outside of the pharmaceutical company. Got it. So you mentioned this this phrase that's quite popular. Pharma loves kind of some phrases that stay around for years and years, whether they're omnichannel or transforming the commercial model. So let's take apart that buzzword a little bit. When you think about that phrase, knowing that you don't use that phrase, but when you think about what the components are of it. What does that mean? What is feasible to a pharmaceutical or life science company to be able to take a commercial model that is in need of updating and, and kind of managing that path towards doing so? That's a great question. And I, I really think it's important, as you say, to sort of de-buzzword the concepts here. And it's so obvious that so many people will use those terms and have very different definitions underneath them. So I think it's a, it's a great topic. So I think the simplest version, the way I would describe it, is the sort of commercial transformation, if you will, really rests in, in, in sort of three main components. The first is creating a much more rapid content and campaign development cycle. So this is from a four to six month content campaign development cycle to a two to four week, much more rapidly getting out fresh content to be able to engage customers when and where they need it. The second is creating a much more advanced analytics-oriented base to how you think about deployment, predicting with advanced analytics uh, and AI, the right customer, the right interaction through the right channel at the right time. And then the last is a modern and integrated mix of actual ways to interact with the customer, channel mix. Far too often does the industry effectively optimize each of its ways that it interacts with the physician customer uh, independently and then push them all out, hoping that they find their way to the customer at the right time somehow. But the notion of being able to say, I would like to follow up uh, with with an in-person visit with this type of uh, digital communication and and how that architects its way through a customer journey is absolutely something that's part of this more modernized commercial approach. And if I step back, I think those three topics, probably if I would have talked to a commercial leader three to four years ago, uh, most of those topics in one way, shape or form have existed in, 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 in how people think about uh, a new commercial or new go-to-market model. It's really been the question of how. Uh, how do you, for lack of a better term, step off the ledge? How do you think about moving uh, away from a, a commercial model that works, I would say, well enough in an industry that actually is, by all objective metrics, doing very well? 
uh, towards something that 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 I think people know is more customer centric is going to provide a better customer experience and frankly going to be better attuned with the modern physician needs. What is the hindrance do you think to faster adoption of what it appears to be pretty widespread agreement about some of the 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 elements you just covered around campaign and content around analytics and around sort of message sequencing and, and, and managing that journey. Um, and yet it takes quite a bit of time. Is it the lack of impact on financial performance? Like right now, it's, it's actually doing quite well and the old model isn't producing broken results, even though people know that there's a need for updating? Or is it risk aversion related to the industry because there's so many things related to data privacy and there's a lot at stake. There's more at stake here than there is at a lot of, in a lot of other industries. But what, what prevents that from moving at a faster pace in our industry? I do think there's something around the lack of exogenous shocks, right? Um, if you think about a retailer, they've had to respond to sort of consistent and very dynamic threat from e-retailers, from Amazon, et cetera. And the pharmaceutical industry, especially the commercial side, really has to sort of reinvent from within, right? To your point, the pharmaceutical model as it has stood, it does work, right? It has a positive ROI and we know it works. We're confident it works. And you only get one chance to launch that new brand. So I think there is a mix of it It works, you know, by some measure well enough. There have not been the exogenous shocks that there have been in other, in other industries, but I think in many ways, the current situation with the COVID-19 pandemic uh, is, is also you know, serving as a catalyst to, you know, for lack of a better term, lay bare you know, some of the, the, the underlying faults uh, in, the, in the commercial model that has existed for quite some time. So let's talk about that for a second, because I, I think in many ways, you know, as we've discussed, pharma is the least suited industry to handle immediate and significant disruption. It just takes time because either these are very large organizations with a lot of data sources, with a lot of different relationships to manage. And so it takes time. But the situation that we're in right now related to the COVID-19 pandemic is nothing but immediate and significant disruption. And so it's taken the industry and just said, listen, you don't have two to three years to now enact these changes. You have two to three quarters, maybe two to three months. There's an immediacy that's required. How are you seeing your clients be able to adapt to that urgency related to what's changed in the market in the last six months? First and foremost, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic is a humanitarian challenge and solving the challenge is, is a top priority. And I'm very optimistic that our pharma friends are on the cutting edge of what it's going to take to be at the forefront of that. And that we'll be looking for a vaccine to help our friends on the on the front line, and frankly, all of us uh, as we help you know strive towards the the, the next normal. But I think in, in relation to the commercial interaction, as I said, I think it's it's sort of pulled the covers back on things that people knew were there for quite some time. We've done you know significant research all throughout the pandemic. We've frankly interviewed uh, thousands of physicians. We've refreshed that on a monthly basis to ask some fundamental questions. How are you interacting with the pharmaceutical companies? What do you need uh, from an information perspective? And we've seen that at the height, the ability to contact the physician customers has gone down in many therapeutic areas in many parts of the globe by as much as 90%. You know, it's a lack of interaction and, and to your point, a very sudden lack of interaction and a lack of interaction across the entire industry. So in some ways, it's sort of the most unnatural experiment we could have possibly designed. But I think it's made it very clear that we need to find a new way. When, when we ask physicians, what is it going to look like? How do you want to interact with the pharmaceutical companies on a go-forward basis? 
it's quite quite surprising. They actually will say that the volume of interaction in their minds actually remains roughly consistent with what it was in a pre-COVID situation, but that balance shifts, right? They they, they think you know up to fifty percent of the interaction, and this is survey based, but up to fifty percent of the interaction, you know, might come virtually in one in one way, shape, or form. So I, I think it's it's really put, for lack of a better term, a, a catalyst into what was uh, maybe a, a slow moving shift. Uh, and as I often say. The industry was in a stage prior to COVID of of pilot paralysis. Everyone liked the concepts, was doing little pilots uh, here and there, a little part of the country, a smaller brand, et cetera, et cetera. But I think what we're seeing now is is a clear move to scale in the direction that that we previously laid out. And if I think about how companies can really accelerate, first is a clear organizational vision of what it's going to take to make the transformation of reality, strong senior support to say, here's where we're going over the next two to three years. This isn't a quarter to quarter decision. This is, you know, a, a commitment to a transformational program and a commitment to do things differently over what's going to take breaking down several of the existing processes and true sort of change focus at the senior level. The second is a roadmap for what it's going to take to get there, <laughs> inclusive of investment, uh, investment in technology. What is the budget requirements? And the workforce looks different around this, right? You have an increase in data scientists, digital talent, you know, different roles that might not have existed traditionally in a pharmaceutical commercial organization. And then the last is, you know, a, a willingness to understand that the next normal will require new ways of operating. So really, for lack of a better term, going at those processes, what are those processes? How do they need to change? What is the core of a brand planning cycle? What is the core of call planning? These sort of tr- very bedrock processes in a pharmaceutical commercial organization and reimagining them towards the future. Those are the kind of things that we've seen the people that are really you know, starting to leapfrog uh, start to put in place. So when you're counseling your, your clients, and a lot of it has to do with change management, because that seems to be what we're all Sorry to use another buzz term from our industry, but that seems to be what we're all um, having to get very skilled at dealing with uh, change because you just don't know what's going to happen in our world these days. But in terms of counseling your clients, as you help them through change management, do you find the challenges to be greater on the, the technical side or on the human side in terms of and anybody who's listened to this podcast knows this is a bit of a leading question because I have a perspective <laughs> that the human side gets undervalued. How much needs to be addressed there related to human behaviors and organizational processes? And we get very wrapped up in what goes in the tech stack. But in many times, the success factors are very reliant upon the human side of it. Is that something that you see as well? Or how do you see that balance in terms of coaching them through change? We absolutely do. And I think we're very, very aligned on this. Um, We've done work across industries on what it takes to enact transformational change. 70% of transformation programs fail because of a lack of change management. And I think that's probably even higher in the specific transformation that we're talking about here. This is not a technology problem. There are technology solutions, but the fundamental problem in reality is one of being able to you know, literally, what is the glide path from the way we operate today as an organization to the way we want to operate? And how do we roadmap out those changes so they happen in a smooth way? I'm not suggesting that you can come and rip off the Band-Aid and sort of operate in, you know, 
as an example, you can't go from, you know, an annual brand planning cycle to operating completely in two week sprints in a month. This takes time. This takes capability building. This takes new ways of budgeting and new ways of thinking about the processes, but fully agree that it's much more of a problem to solve around the how and not the what. And the how is one of, of, of change management and a realization that it really takes sort of working it out in the nitty gritty of those uh, of those underlying business processes to start to operate in the way that that where things really start to click. And I sometimes call it the awkward teenage years, right? There's a period in between where, you know, things do feel, you know, clunkier, right? We were used to the way we operated in many ways uh, before. But I think that's where this senior leader dedication and knowledge of the fact that this is going to this is going to be a multi-year process is so important, right? Because it's the sort of steady hand on the wheel in those periods of time that really we've seen get the organization uh, through it. And and on the back end, what we see when people start operating in this way, what it brings is much higher customer experience, as I've already mentioned, but frankly, much higher employee experience, right? Um, if you start thinking about, you know, how do I much more nimbly, I have more insight about my customer. I actually think I'm providing my customer with a with 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 the right information at the right time. And finally, I'm mixing it up in a cross-functional team uh, on a consistent basis. You know, I'm not sort of in my silo doing my, my job and sort of interacting with some some big brand planning meeting. We're very collaboratively, you know, in in, in agile ways working together, uh, all with the customer at the end. Absolutely. Let me um, broaden our perspective a little bit here. So obviously being at an organization like McKinsey, you have visibility into a lot of different things. You've been there in the time you've been there. We've gone through a lot of changes as an economy in the U.S. or a global economy. We've seen a couple of financial crises. A lot of the contextual intelligence discussion is around adaptability and resilience. How have you learned about those two during your time at McKinsey and how does it kind of permeate the way that you work with clients these days? It's a uh, very timely topic, certainly. I mean, I, I, I think probably my biggest personal learning is just to really have a three-cycle mentality, effectively meaning, where do I want to be personally? Where do I want you know the type of client work that I do, the type of client work that we as McKinsey do uh, as a firm? Where do I want that to be you know, on the back end of whatever situation that we're going through at any given time? And really think about you know, step back and say, well, what's it going to take to get there? And and maybe that means investing in difficult times. Maybe that means sticking by the commitments that you've made in difficult times. Maybe that means, you know, for lack of a better term, scrapping things. And to your point, being fundamentally adaptable to pick up new priorities, but to but to really think, where do we want to be on, on the back half, you know, the, the, the next normal, if you will, of our current situation. So that's, that's probably the biggest learning, at least for me personally. The other learning has just been to, to sort of listen to our people. I mean, at McKinsey in particular, I believe our greatest asset is our people. This time has been especially challenging in terms of, you know, ways of working, demands on people's time. And, you know, we have client service and client experience in our DNA, but the notion of adding to that and thinking about team experience and, and how do we, you know, in these situations adapt to how we work, provide, you know, needed structure for certain colleagues, provide more flexibility for others, but just listening and getting a tuned sense of what's going to be helpful and being willing to, you know, throw out ways that aren't working and start uh, new ones has been very helpful in particular over the course of the last uh, six months. So 
we've talked about the pace of innovation and the pace of change, but at the same time, what's most exciting about your work, I would imagine, is being able to envision what's coming next and seeing what's coming next that you can help your clients solve. What's on the radar for you that way that you're most excited about? What, what challenges do you see on the horizon that are really gonna be uh, interesting from a strategic or impact standpoint that you'll be able to help your, your clients solve? There's two things I'm particularly excited about. The first is, if we think about you know, 2021 and going into 2022, what does the next normal truly look like, right, from a, from a commercial perspective? I think we've described ways of working that were frankly true prior to the current pandemic situation and have been accelerated by the current pandemic situation. But I, it, it is relatively clear from you know, both the survey work that we're doing as well as just my uh, conversations with pharmaceutical executives that there's some real shifts in how you know, customers get information on how patients think about interacting with the healthcare system and really helping and thinking through with clients how what they bring to market, um, uh, less from a product perspective, but more from a, you know, how they interact with customers, you know, really evolves to deal with what will be a new set of demands. And I think some of that's coming into focus as we speak, but the truth is it's all still, you know, continuing to play out and continuing to evolve. Uh, so that's one uh, that's, I think, pretty pretty near term, pretty immediate. The next is just how we think as commercial organizations around some of these new modalities, you know, cell and gene therapy. These are uh, areas where it's a complicated patient set, a very complicated delivery mechanism in some instances, and, you know, a very small customer base. So sort of the typical approach of, well, I have thousands of customers I have to get to with a relatively simple message is turned on its head. And now I have a few customers I need to get to with a very high service requirement. So I think that's an inflection point that will bring a new set of capabilities to uh, pharmaceutical organizations. And some are already ahead on this, right? You know, the rare disease companies have certainly had to innovate in very interesting ways. But I think this is something we're just starting to sort of, you know, scratch the surface on. And over the course of the next, you know, five plus years, uh, we'll see it. We'll see a pretty significant shift in the amount of uh, both industry growth, but also just thinking on the commercial side that really is evolved by advanced therapies. Absolutely. Great. Well, maybe, Nick, my last question before we get to the, the Nick Mills in context, which I know everybody who's listening to this has been waiting uh, anxiously for. So, you know, you have you mentioned this earlier, you kind of referred to it, but you have a unique perspective on the pharma industry through your close relationships with a lot of the major players in the space. There's so much attention on this pursuit of a vaccine and trying to figure out how quickly that can come to market. Um, is there anything that you can share that might surprise or comfort um, people about, you know, what you see in that in that goal and in that that rapid effort to try to find a solution to to the pandemic that we're dealing with, or at least not a solution, but a, a solve a, a, a vaccine of some kind? I think what I would say is my clients feel a real burden to help and, and to deliver here and to do the right thing. And I think that's, you know, it really permeates, you know, every conversation and in relate as it relates to the, the, the COVID-19 situation, but I think more broadly in all reality. I and mean, I think, you know, if there's something that maybe people don't traditionally know about, you know, the average pharmaceutical company is the intense patient focus. Uh, these organizations really understand the disease states uh, that they work in. They understand the patient impact of the disease. They spend a lot of time on, you know, how does that impact, you know, patients, you know, from a psychosocial perspective and, and, and how do they how do they help support in trying times? And I think that, you know, what you're seeing is, you know, 
similar to other situations, that be both heightened from a timing perspective as it relates to the, the COVID-19 vaccine, um, but also heightened from, you know, a, an intensity and a focus perspective. So the I- intense amount of focus on the patient and the, and the knowledge and burden uh, that I think they collectively bear to to want to do the right thing in, in, in as uh, expeditious amount of time as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I think we see that too. Well, thank you for that. So if you don't mind, let's pivot into a little bit of uh, some personal interest topics here we like to do with each of our guests and called and in this case it's called Nick Mills in context but let me start by asking you who has been an influence on your career that might surprise us uh, well I'm not sure it's surprising because this might be an answer for a number of people but my father has been a significant influence he uh, is an independent insurance agent in western Iowa so he's been in sales his whole life and you know he's instilled a, a sense of of hard work honest tell it like it is that I, I I know he probably wouldn't expect me to say it but I sort of permeated you know uh, everything I've done from you know science and now 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 into consulting and helping you know large companies and executives but but you know never being satisfied with the status quo always pushing always being completely honest even when it's difficult and a little bit of what it what it looks like to be you know on the road and uh, a salesperson uh, has been helpful throughout my career that's excellent. Well, I don't think uh, the fa- your father as an answer to this question can ever be considered tired or cliche. It's just a good one. So yeah, <laughs> thank you for that. Um, so if money was not a factor, what career would you most like to pursue? And it can't, I mean, of course you would say, you know, doing exactly what you're doing, but it has to be something other than what you're currently doing. I would be a high school chemistry teacher. I'm so excited. I have two young girls, uh, five and two, and I'm, I'm like waiting for chemistry to, to, to come <laughs> as a subject. I fell in love with, with science and I still, you know, fundamentally am, um, am really passionate about the science that you know, my clients do, but also, you know, just the scientific uh, field. I didn't love doing science, but I loved thinking about science. So I wouldn't want to go back and do research or anything overly stressful, like, you know, be a college professor or anything, but the core concepts in high school chemistry uh, were just, you know, they shaped, they shaped my life. And I, I would love to just spend time helping impart that to others. Excellent. Excellent. Well, having just had a high schooler who went through that and enjoyed chemistry immensely, I have another, another one who's at the starting of that process. I can, I can relate to that. Not as a scientist myself, but having seen uh, my son enjoy, enjoy it probably the same way you did. If you need a tutor, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> I'm happy to. Sounds like you are ready and passionate. Um, well, my daughter's more of an artist, so we might take you up on that. I don't know if she'll take to it quite as quickly. Um, what profession would you most not want to pursue, no matter what it paid? It's a tough question. I, I, I wouldn't be overly interested in anything in the political realm. I, 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 I like problem solving. As I said earlier, I sort of, I, I sort of like getting to the bottom. It's the scientist in me, right? I like getting to the bottom of, of what the issue is to be solved and, 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 and sort of rolling up sleeves and cracking it. And I'm not sure. I think you spend a lot of time thinking about you know, how to frame the problem versus solving it. At least that's my impression. So maybe that's the right, the right way to think about it. <laughs> that, uh, that has come up once or twice before in this section, that, that field uh, as an answer to this question. Um, what is the best book you've read recently and why? Funny story. I uh, was on a flight, obviously, prior to um, the COVID situation sometime late last year um, uh, from the West Coast. And I happened to sit next to Malcolm Gladwell um, Wow, and I had seen his book on the shelf, talking to strangers, but I hadn't read it yet. 
And so like, I had this complex, like I didn't want to talk to him because I didn't actually know what the book talking to strangers was about. And it's odd for me to talk to him <laughs> on a plane when there's this book out there that presumably has like you know, some connotation about, you know, just picking up a conversation with, uh, with strangers. So I mentioned this something as we were getting off the plane, I, I, I hadn't, I hadn't read it and that's why I didn't you know speak to him, but I, I would be sure to. And I, I found it actually quite enthralling. Talking to strangers is the name of the book. And uh, it's just really about how, you know, how your perception of the people that you meet and how you process it, you know, really impacts the way in which you interact. And you really have to think how that's influencing your day-to-day -day interactions, whether it's in business or personal. Interesting. Yeah. He's such a recognizable guy too. I can't imagine he can travel uh, incognito very easily. No, it was pretty easy. Pretty easy. <laughs> how old are your daughters? Uh, five and two. Okay. So maybe a couple years from now, maybe your, your five-year-old has a friend over. Let's say they're eight and your daughter's friend asks you what you do for a living. What do you tell her? I have a seven-year-old nephew, so cl close. And I've had this conversation. Yeah. Um, it's not easy, by the way. If you ask my daughter what I do, she'll typically say talk on the phone, right? It's all very like, she's five. Yes. So it's, all, it's very, <laughs> yeah. she just, whatever action I'm doing is what I, is, is my job. But to my nephew, what I've said is I help companies big and small solve the most difficult problems with a great team of colleagues by my side. Excellent. Very good. Does he have follow-up questions to that or does that work? I typically say like, what kind of problem? Then it starts getting into the detail. What kind of problems? What do you mean problems? And Got it. I say anything, uh, uh, really yeah. anything. Depends on the situation. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Last question. So it's your ultimate dinner party for four. Who is in attendance and what is served? My initial reaction, which I, I'll give you a better answer. I would say I would say my I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a homebody. So I'd say my my in reality, the answer is probably my family of four. But that's not an interesting answer. So I'm a huge Nebraska football fan. Legendary Nebraska coach Tom Osborne would be one of them. Liz Blackburn is a Nobel laureate at UCSF. She was actually there when I was, was there. But she's done phenomenal work in the in the area of aging and our biochemical understanding of, of, of aging. I'm increasingly interested in in art, specifically uh, urban art. So maybe the the New Jersey born uh, street artist Cause, uh, if you're familiar. And then the last is my grandmother. Um, I, I have one surviving grandparent. She's a phenomenal, unique person, uh, and I would just love to have her there with everyone else. That is a great list. I love when these lists are that eclectic, like they have that many different kind of pers perspectives and viewpoints, and you don't know what you would get out of it. So yeah, that's a great list. Nick, thanks so much for uh, coming on. I feel like as, as is frequently the case, because we've had very interesting people with great perspectives on this, we could have talked probably double the time, but um, I appreciate all the perspectives and the time you gave us. And thanks so much for joining us. Thank you much, Clay. Really enjoyed it. That's it for this episode of Contextual Intelligence. I'm your host, Clay Hausman, and we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. In the meantime, you can find all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a review or a comment or a question or all of the above so we can make sure that this podcast brings the proper context to your work. Thanks, everybody, for joining us.